This message comes from NPR sponsor Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Dana-Farber scientists laid the foundation for CDK4-6 inhibitors, new drugs that are increasing the survival rate for many advanced breast cancers. Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. This is the 1A Record Club. The 1A Record Club. This is 1A. 1A. 1A Record Club. Welcome to the 1A Record Club. Tina Turner, the queen of rock and roll, died last week in her home in Switzerland. She was 83 years old. We asked you to share your memories of the legendary singer, and as always, your responses were simply the best. Tina Turner, as a teenager growing up in Chicago, Illinois, she represented fierceness, toughness, and sexy as hell. Today, we're going to show some respect to Tina Turner. She blessed us with her distinctive vocals and thrilling performances for more than six decades. And behind the $100 million in record sales are the personal connections her music made with you, too. I remember when I was about three or four years old, my mom would drive me to the stake here in Virginia. And every morning, I would beg her to play What's Love Got to Do With It? And I would sing along having no knowledge or sense of what the song was about, but just absolutely loving it. And we spoke about it years and years later. And she said, I hope that song didn't shape your views on love. It did not. It was just a great song. Who needs a heart when a heart can be broken? Today on the 1A Record Club, the life of Tina Turner and her incredible influence. We heard from so many of you, and I don't want to fight, so we'll share as many of your memories as we can. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We've got so much to get into. Stay with us. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Here to help us navigate Tina Turner's career and legacy is Tammy Kernodal. She's a distinguished professor of music at Miami University in Ohio. Tammy, welcome back to the program. Hello, it's good to be here with you. Also with us is Kierna Mayo. She's the executive editor and vice president of One World and Rock Lit 101. Kierna, welcome to 1A. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, I want to start by asking a question. We asked our listeners, what are some special memories you have that are tied to Tina Turner's music? Tammy, I'll start with you. Um, There's a couple of things. Um, I would say as a child of the 70s, um, seeing her perform, particularly Proud Mary, um, seeing her show up on Soul Train. But as a young woman coming of age, you know, shifting from high school to college, I think, you know, the the release of uh, the Private Dancer album and what 
the song What's Love Got to Do With It, just really framing a lot for me at that time. Well, we have to, of course, listen to some Proud Mary since you mentioned it. I mean, what was it like for you to see her, this black woman, I mean, just performing all out? What what impact did that have on you? You know, I think it it really, for me, very early, you know, let me know that my black female body didn't have to be contained. You know, um, we are socialized, you know, to be uh, to be mindful of how we move, how we sit, um, how we orient ourselves in environments and to see the freedom and the energy that she and the Ikeets embodied as well as the glamour. And at the time, I didn't really have a sense of sex sexuality, but just the raw sexiness of what she was doing, you know, later on that, you know, those things formulated in my mind, but as a young girl. So, you know, Tina was very much a part of uh, my soundtrack, but also, you know, my just embodiment of music, you know, dancing in my room, you know, putting a towel on my head for my wig, you know, singing in the hairbrush, you know, you know, doing the dances, you know, it was it was just really a part of my own sense of awareness uh, as a young black girl. Kirna, what's a special memory you have of Tina Turner? Well, well, first of all, I'm surprised you couldn't hear me amening through the phone, like <laughs> telepathically. Everything Tammy is saying, like spot on. I kind of have chills and it just reminds me of the generational impact, um, like iconic women particularly Tina Turner had, you know, I think about Tina Turner in all of those ways, but actually my mother today is an 83-year-old Black woman. And when I think about her generation and how she being my first role model and the person that I mimic the most, how informed she was by Tina Turner, this idea of the return of someone who now I can respect it and understand it, but when I was a teenager, had no understanding of what it meant to see this 40-something come to life in this way, in the way that she did. So, you know, my mom, now 83, a couple of years ago, did her best version of Tina Turner and won all kinds of beauty pageants and all (laughs) kinds of talent shows. And it just, for me, reminds me of the through line of Black women and the power of our bodies. Tina's motion and her movement empowered my mother's motion and her movement. Tina's idea of freedom of self, that full embodiment that we felt in the way that she dressed, in the way that she performed, literally trickled down to my aunties. I feel like she modeled something and also echoed something that's natural among Black women, a craving to be seen, to be free, to be sexual, but have agency. I don't know. There's something about just looking at Tina Turner that for me is more than a singular moment. It's the visual soundtrack of my life, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when I think about, I, there's so, it's hard to choose a favorite 
song for me, but when the the movie What's Love Got to Do With It came out in 19, I think it was 93, so I was in my late teens, and I heard Tina's prayer make me over for the first time. And that's from the 1973 album Nutbush City Limits. And I remember as a teenager, and I knew I knew who Tina Turner was. I knew her music, but I had never heard this song before. And it just empowered me in a way I didn't, I, I had never really felt before. It just kind of filled me up from the marrow of my bones out because it was this declaration of strength and desire and need. Uh, I, I, I love, love, love that song. Let's hear from Tina herself. This is her speaking on the Dick Cavett Show in 1972. Is there anybody you can point to uh, that uh, you listened to as a kid and wanted to sound like? Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. Rich Halls, Sam Cooke. Uh, I, I never started wanting to be, you know, real feminine. Tammy, what was it about Tina's voice that made it so special? I think, you know, it, it really um, it really challenged what we thought of as sonic femininity in pop culture in the 19, late 1950s, early 1960s. We have to think about when she comes on the scene and what's being projected to us in popular culture in terms of the sound of the female voice, whether you're looking at jazz or even if you're looking at gospel music, which is beginning to break uh, into the mainstream uh, or other R&B sound of like um, a Ruth Brown, you know, most of those voices were somewhat controlled. Um, you did not hear the kind of full throated, aggressive, um, real colorful, weighty sound that you hear in Tina Turner. And I think, you know, what Tina really um, formed um, for those who understood where she was coming from because her voice was so deep with all of these sonic codes that take us back to the hard gospel sound of people like the Davis sisters and um, to the, the, the gospel sound of Sister Rosetta Tharp or the blues sound of a Big Mama Thornton or even the women who came even before Big Mama Thornton in that blues tradition. So, you know, there were all of these sonic codes that in many ways the industry had tried to filter out in terms of mainstream pop music. And so, you know, her unbridled kind of vocal energy was unprecedented at that time for a female singer. I want to go back to our inbox. Here's a message we got from one of you. Tina Turner was an important part of my life and showed up just when I needed her. When my high school band director husband announced he wanted a divorce because he was in love with a 16-year-old captain of the pom-pom girls, well, it was a bit of a shock. I turned to Tina, turned on her music, played at full blast, and danced and danced and danced. How could you be unhappy, worried, frustrated, and not feel strong listening to Tina and dancing your mind away. 
I'm Jen White. Don't turn around. We'll be right back. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. When voters talk during an election season, we listen. We ask questions, we follow up, and we bring you along to hear what we learned. Get closer to the issues, the people, and your vote at the NPR Elections Hub. Visit npr.org elections. Today, we're remembering music icon Tina Turner and the profound effect she had on us. Hello, this is Lynn from Hartford. Back in the late 60s, early 70s, I was a preteen, and we would be sitting at the dinner table every night watching the Vietnam War in a little black and white TV. And one night on a different show, Tina Turner came on with Ike's band. She was dancing and singing, and she was wearing that dress of hers that bangled and shook, and she blew my mind. I was like, oh my God, this is the best performance that I had ever, ever seen. And that's when I fell in love with Tina Turner. Thanks for sharing that, Lynn. We also heard from Becky, who emailed, totally agree with Tammy's comments. I, too, am a child of the 70s and remember being taught how to sit, how to move, etc., and how to be perceived as a quote-unquote young lady. But with Tina and my hairbrush for a microphone, all that flew out of the window. Thank you, Tina. Never forgotten. Let's hear another memory of Tina's music. Hello, this is Mordecai. I want to say I saw Tina Turner in 1987 at the Ritz Theater in New York City. It was just a wonderful concert. I'll never forget it as long as I live. Mordecai, thanks for that message. Kirna, what was it about the way Tina performed that captivated people? Because there are lots of people who can sing and dance in the world, but what made her special? Again, I think it's that full embodiment. Tina herself talked so much about her struggles in life. I think a lot of times we center the Ike years um, as her kind of primary thing that she traversed, but there was so much more. And I think to Tammy's earlier point about the musical tradition, from a layperson's perspective, that kind of guttural, soulful bottom that Mm -hmm. Tina always had in her sound also translated into the body, the gyrations, the reaching, just the kind of staccato, the back and forth that she always presented was almost unladylike, if you will. And for a lot of Black women in particular, um, and again, I think about my mother and her friends and their generation, that internal struggle between um, respectability, as it's known, and that fire within. Tina wrestled with that out loud. And I think the way that she moved and how that she moved, how she moved and what she offered gave a lot of women 
freedom. It was even in the testimonies of the folks that you just had speaking. Everyone felt something when they saw her move. I think that that's um, very kind of goddess-like. There's something about Tina Turner that is unlike any pop performer of her generation and really since. But I was thinking also about how that kind of iconography creates a legacy that you can't undo. When I think about Megan Thee Stallion, for example, someone who is a hip-hop performer, when you consume her, you can't really separate the line between Tina Turner and her. So I recognize in Tina a tradition that um, just kind of imbues a sexuality and power in Black pop performers that is unrivaled, really, truly unrivaled. Tammy, I'd love to hear your thoughts as well. I think that was beautiful. I mean, Kieran, I, I, I was secretly over here amening and saying, because <laughs> I really, I love what you said about your mothers and your aunties, because I think the, that, that Tina's sound had blood memory. And it mm-hmm. and it it resonated in ways that were multi generational, you know, and and could be heard in so many ways. And I think you know, um, just the 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 fullness of her artistry. I think we we still don't really take into consideration the real um, the real breadth and depth of the artistry that Tina Turner brought. You know, especially, you know, in that early chapter with with Ike, you know, because we tend to focus on only a few songs. But when you really listen to deeply to Tina and Ike during that period and what she's mining as repertory um, and what she perfected um, as as showcraft, right, was unprecedented. You know, Um, this past week I have been listening over and over to different things. But one of the things that really struck me that I don't think many people take into account is that she and Ike did two live albums, one in 1964 and one in 1965. And I think I want to really invite people to listen to those albums because I think that really gives us a sense of of Tina before they make that transition into more of a rock idiom you know, and really, really become more mainstream. But you hear the the real depth of all of the different, you know, singers and the repertory she's drawing on. Many of them she named in that um, that interview excerpt um, from before, you know, but but you really hear the energy between her and the audience and her and, you know, the I gets and the kings of rhythm. You know, she was she was just un paralleled Mm -hmm. in what she she did in terms of defining um, an aesthetic, you know, an R&B aesthetic. Tammy, I want you to to pull on a thread for me because you you use the term um, blood memory in reference Mm -hmm. to her music. And that's stuck in my my brain now. What do you mean? Well, I mean, when you hear um, the the gravelness, the earthiness of her sound. I mean, that's a sound that really uh, connects us back to, you know, the, the sounds of the first Africans that came to America, how that became steeped in not just the the 
the soundscape of America, but the literal land of the America. And so, you know, she she is she's she's singing from a deep place that goes back to her ancestral foremothers and forefathers. So you hear the fields and the field hollers in her sound, but you also hear the liberation and the and the transcendence that took those sounds into the church um, and then made them a part of, you know, that blues aesthetic that became the basis of R&B and rock and roll. And so there really is a blood memory and it really is a genealogy. Those are not just, you know, fancy words, the scholars I use that her voice echoes mm-hmm. through time. And so, you know, there's always this kind of she she in many ways is speaking in in different spheres to a to a, a past to the immediate present that she was embodying at that time. But her voice also really pointed to some future sounds. Um, as Kieran has said, we, we can see that embodied in a generation of performers now, but that sound is also embodied throughout much of the late 20th century. Mm. And it's embodied by men just as much as it's embodied by women. Mm. We got this email from Gary who says, Back in the 1970s, I was a lighting director and once worked spotlights for Tina Turner's electrifying performance. Then in the early 1990s, my wife and I visited her cousin's church where his entire sermon was about the resilience of Tina Turner, of how you can overcome the worst of what life throws at you with determination and respect for yourself. And here's another voicemail message we got from one of you. Hi, my name is Jay. My favorite song of hers is Proud Mary. My God, how it uplifts me when I hear it. I've always appreciated her power, her resilience, and how, oh my goodness, I'm getting choked up. <laughs> I didn't expect this. But it, it, it just really saddens me that um, she's gone. And I'm glad that she managed to have such a much better life than she had with Ike Turner. It always gave me hope when I was younger, and it certainly has helped me have a better life today. Jay, thanks for that message. Jay's referring to the abuse that Tina survived at the hands of her former husband, Ike Turner. Karen, she was one of the first celebrities to speak candidly about domestic abuse. How important was that? Oh, uh, critically important. I mean, now we have the benefit of seeing this in review. But just imagine how maverick this woman was in real time, in her day, to speak Truth, not to power, just to speak truth. Because for a black woman, let alone a performer, that was a very challenging position to be in. Not just to receive the years and years of physical and psychological and emotional abuse that she sustained, but also to recognize that if she did not at some point say something, she couldn't do what she said she wanted to do later, which was reclaim her name, leave with just what she had herself. She had lost so much. I read a lot after she passed about those years. And she was very clear that during those years, she was struggling. She was manifesting all that she had to give in her art. But all the other parts of her, she said, were dying. And it's really a revolution of the spirit, you know, in any artist when you see them pivot in a place in their life. But when they share that with the public, 
um, it's rare and it's special and it's also a lesson for many of us. So in a world without a movement known as Me Too, you had Tina Turner signaling to women of all races, of all ages, of all creeds, really survivors of any strike, um, that your voice mattered, that you had something to say, you had better say it, and you could leave with only what you have if what you have is yourself. So it was a huge kind of social and cultural lesson that obviously still resonates today. Hey, Tammy, how was that message received when she first delivered it? Because in, in retrospect, people talk about her strength. But at the same time, one of you mentioned Megan Thee Stallion, and, and we see the vitriol she faced when she was shot by the man she was dating at the time. Yes, and I think that's unfortunate. I think we have to think about the fact that I, Tina, that the first um, autobiography that she writes With comes Kurt out yeah. right out at the time that we actually get the color purple um, in in movie theaters, right? So it's a coupling of these black women's stories, right, of triumph and recreation, but also the trauma and the abuse that they have dealt with. And I think, unfortunately, um, you know, she, as well as other women like Meg Thee Stallion, have always had to to walk this fault line of telling their truth and trying to hold their abusers accountable. There's always this critique about the demonization of black men um, and perpetuating um, negative stereotypes, you know. Um, but um, I think, you know, her story resonated in so many ways and accompanied with the music, you know, really gave depth. But, you know, she, she and other black women have been critiqued um, very heavily, but it did not stop her from living her truth. The power of Tina Turner's spirit came through loud and clear in her music. Here's River Deep, Mountain High. Now, that's a song we all know her for, but here's what she said about it to David Letterman in 1984. Black stations said it was it was too pop, and the pop stations said it was too black, mm-hmm. and it had no home, and Phil was just very upset about it. And He thought that this was going to be the ultimate, the ultimate state-of-the-art song of the day. It is in Europe, yeah. all over Europe. Yeah, it, it was is. a big hit, right? Yes, mm-hmm. huge. And it just didn't make it in America, did it? Yeah. I mean, Tammy, you talked about the influences in Tina's sound, the many sources she's drawing from, but she's describing being in this musical space where she, at least with this song, didn't quite didn't quite fit. Why did European audiences embrace her? I, I think it had to do with the fact that European artists didn't necessarily put black artists in these limited boxes in the way that the American cultural industry did. You know, um, you know they, they heard the depth of artistry. And I think this has been the case with black artists who have gone to Europe um, 
and by that time had been there for almost a century, right? You know, black artists traveling back and forth. There was just an openness to the artistry, but also an understanding of um, the, the kind of um, evolution of these sounds. You know, we've got to think when this out, this particular record came out in 1966, you've got European audiences that are being exposed to black folk traditions and blues and gospel because there are all of these package tours and festivals that are touring um, the UK in particular. Um, and so you've got her in dialogue in real time with people like Sister Rosetta Tharp or Sunhouse or Muddy Waters um, and or Big Mama Thornton who are captured, you know, in some ways projecting what is this musical past to these European orchestra, uh, audiences. And you've got her in real time, you know, kind of building on those sounds and paradigms and, and, and in a very fresh and contemporary way. Uh, so I think they were just more and more open. Mm. Um, you know, we, we forget the type of artistic apartheid that black artists have had to navigate here in America. We got this email from Vanessa who says, Even as a chubby little black girl, I understood that Tina Turner's existence was telling me something about what it meant to be alive, what it took to really be alive in America in a black girl's body. I knew that she was challenging me to live up to the fire of my own heart, my own life, which would be read by the world as dangerous and frightening, but I must contend with it if I am really to be alive in my own skin and dreams. She invited us into our full selves, into our fire, and into our vulnerability. We live in gratitude for her fullness. We also got this message from one of you. I grew up in a culture where physical violence against the wife was seen as a necessity to discipline her. As a young woman who was to be married one day, this was also taught to me by my mother. Seeing Tina share her own story and her strength to leave showed me that I did not have to accept violence against me by anyone. I credit her for saving my life. Thanks for those messages. Coming up, we continue our tribute to Tina Turner and we talk about her legacy. Stay with us. This message comes from Capital One, presenting sponsor of the 2024 Tiny Desk Contest. Earlier this year, unsigned musicians from around the country submitted their original songs for the 10th annual Tiny Desk Contest. The panel of judges are hard at work picking standout entries, and you can follow along and choose your favorite videos as well. The winner gets to play their very own Tiny Desk Concert, then headline a tour with NPR Music this summer. Want to come along for the ride? Visit tinydeskcontest.npr.org to learn more. Then check out the Venture X card from presenting sponsor Capital One. Earn unlimited 2X miles on everything you buy and turn everyday purchases into extraordinary trips. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. 
So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. Let's get back to the discussion and listen to Tina speaking to CNN's Larry King in 1997. You're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Do you consider yourself rock and roll? Yes. Is that your, that's your idiom? That's my style. I, I take great songs and turn them into rock and roll songs on stage. Kierna, how would you describe Tina Turner's evolution? Because I don't think most people would say she started off as a rock artist, but that's what she claimed later. Hmm. Um, you're right. I, I don't think most people would say that she started as a rock artist, but I would push back just a bit because I think we have to broaden to Tammy's earlier point. Like these These lanes, these artistic lanes that we force musical artists into are just false to begin with. So if we appreciate what I think Tina always understood rock to be, right, this kind of ferocious, brave, in-your-face, disruptive soul. It's all soul music. Mm. There are variations in how it is, it's expressed. And I think Tina was very savvy in how she used language and didn't use language, how she used the form itself to disrupt any idea that you could simply place her in a simple box. Um, That same quote that we just listened to was also in Danielle Smith's book, Shine Bright, which is really wonderful. Um, it's a very, the subtitle is A Very Personal History of Black Women in Pop. And what she says about Tina of that era is really interesting to me because she posits that a lot of critics, when Tina came back, I'll just put it in her words, she said um, that they were asking her to play it small with so much of the energy coming back at Tina. Keep it within Nutbush city limits. Stay comfortable being our gritty and soulful Black inspiration for white rock. Remain vulnerable to our cultural and emotional looting. Leave the big stages, baby girl, to us. So that was kind of what the the signaling that was coming to her as she transitioned. But for herself, again, this kind of self-possession and embodiment that she insisted on, she turned blind eye to it. She just simply did not embraced the critics in that way, and she continued on. I love that she says she takes great songs and turns them into <laughs> rock and roll songs. You know what I'm saying? She said, so, so, which is to say, like, it's all about me, honey. I'm the power. I'm the rage. I'm the soul. You will not relegate me to any lane. If it's rock and roll, it's because I said so. So maybe she thought she was rock from the beginning. I know um, there's a through line in all of her music, really from beginning to end, that, to me, um, is exactly what Tammy was saying earlier about just having this blood memory. It just feels very connected to the place from which she comes. So many of you are sharing your favorite songs and memories of Tina Turner. Clarence says, one tune from Private Dancer that I loved was Be Good to Me. That is a great tune. Miriam remembers hearing a Tina tune for the first time pretty vividly. It was July 4th, 1985, when I first heard Tina Turner's We Don't Need Another Hero. I was 14 years old. It just sounded so lush, so serious, kind of futuristic. I loved the chords, loved how the song progressed, loved the children in the chorus. It remains one of my favorites. And Tammy, something we haven't touched on is Tina Turner's 
business savvy. I mean, she she reintroduced herself in a way to the musical world at, at 40 and built a successful career from there with so many odds stacked against her. I mean, how did how did she think about and navigate the music business so successfully? I think that's an excellent question, um, especially considering that there is a period right after the, the, her divorce from Ike where she's in financial distress and and trying to, you know, build uh, audience attention for her um, minus, you know, Ike and the review kind of setting that she was well known for, you know, but I think it was having the right management and someone who was able to hear Tina past her age in a, a 80s, you know, uh, cultural moment that was uh, decidedly more youthful, um, more edgy than what most people would have thought, you know, a 44-year-old was capable of doing. But I think it was it was always um, mining, having great management, but also mining great songs that um, were believable, that, you know, um, were accessible to people. Um, I think it, her performances just really resonated with people and, and coupling that you know, with her showmanship and 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 really focusing on those live performances. You know, we, we think about Private Dancer, you know, it was an iconic record, an al- iconic album. You know, her subsequent albums did not do as well, but um, but she, you know, garnered stadium uh, size audiences, which was unprecedented for the time. So I think it was finding the right alchemy of, of management, production teams, um, but, but also, you know, um, playing into what was this kind of cult status that she had. You know, you think about her merchandising deals, you know, Hanes pantyhose, you know, her capitalizing on her iconic legs. So, you know, there was, there was, um, a sense of, um, she understood what her worth was. And I think that harkens back to a point made earlier about her name. You know, the one thing she asked for in that divorce decree was her name because she understood the cultural currency of that name. She needed nothing else from Ike because she knew that she could build on that because of the catalog of songs, but also the reputation she had as a performer. Well, I want to make sure we get to this uh, voicemail one of you sent in. It's, it's pretty wonderful. Hi, this is Marilyn. I was a childbirth educator for about 25 years. And many, many years ago, when the Proud Mary version done by Tina Turner was extreme popularity, I had a couple in my childbirth class who chose that as the music she was going to breathe to when she did her breathing techniques while she was in labor. And I just love that story. I admire her because that's a rather fast-paced song. And uh, But it worked for her. I talked to them afterwards, and she had a great childbirth experience. So Tina Turner was part of that. Marilyn, thanks for that message. We also heard from Rita, who says Tina became such a wonderful role model for me in the 60s. She used her personal strength to take all the needed steps to become her full, expressive self. When we talk about legacy, 
and the story you you leave behind. Kirna, it, it, it seems to me that that was pretty important to Tina Turner and that she she took steps to protect her legacy and to make sure her story was told, but that it was told by her. Does that resonate with you? Oh, it, it really does. And again, the um, that kind of natural universality of the Black woman that Tina specifically held. I mean, one, to be a survivor, right? You talk about a legacy. I think about Mary J. Blige. I think about Whitney Houston. Other people who have been survivors of intimate partner violence and all kinds of survivors. That ferociousness of spirit is as much a part of her intentional legacy, I think, as anything else. But just in thinking about how she was able to go from broke, I have nothing, I'm leaving this 16-year-long relationship with nothing but myself, and turning that into hundreds of millions of dollars um, is more than a notion. And it really should be recognized for the kind of extreme sense of excellence that she displayed. She believed in herself enough to learn what she needed to learn, to take specific chances, to understand her relationship with Europe, which I think is so savvy in hindsight. Like her kind of international appeal is something that she leaned way into. Um, And that brought her fruit. I mean, she chose the path of her life. We see where she lived and died. Um, But I think that kind of intention is a roadmap of a legacy for women coming behind her. Those who are artists, performers, dreamers, creatives, intellects, all of us, all of us can learn from that kind of modeling. Tammy, I'd love to hear your thoughts as well, especially as we think of, you know, the the biography, we think about the the film, the Broadway musical, along with the music catalog and her story. How are you reflecting on Tina's legacy, both the the intentional legacy and the legacy that's left by her just being who she was? You know, um, I really have been thinking about this deeply uh, over the past week since she passed. And, um, you know, I really have been listening to many of her song lyrics. And there was there's one song in particular that I have been going back to and um, the song is I Smell Trouble. Hmm. And there's a line in the song where she says, I will not run and hide. I'm going to go out there and face trouble with a smile. And from now, say from now, I will not run and hide. I'm going to go out there and face trouble with a smile. And, you know, to me, that is so prophetic. Um, and it, 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 it resonates with me because as a black woman navigating all of these different spaces, it gives me something to hold on to.
That's Tammy Kernodal. She's a distinguished professor of music at Miami University in Ohio. Also with us, Kierna Mayo. She's the executive editor and vice president of One World and Rocklet 101. Tammy, Kierna, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you for speaking with us. No, 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 no. They just won't let me be. Today's producer was Jorgelina Manarea. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A. This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor, Lisa, in collaboration with West Elm. Discover the new natural hybrid mattress, expertly crafted from natural latex and certified safe foams, designed with your health and the planet in mind. Visit leesa.com to learn more. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.